Not too long ago, there was an article uh, on CNN's homepage entitled The Big Stories for 2016, and it started out this way. It said, one year from now, we will all exhale in exhaustion, looking back at 2016 that kept the entire world on edge. The article goes on to predict that it's going to be a tumultuous year, a year in which uh, the events are going to shake uh, the world, shake our economy, uh, shake uh, even our freedom. And if you weren't a believer, or if you are a believer, and you don't remember who's ruling and reigning, you might get anxiety in reading this article. This morning, I want to talk to you about what I believe is the most important doctrine after you become saved that you need to remember. The most important doctrine that will sustain what the Bible calls uh, the abundant life for you. That will sustain the peace that the Bible promises to give his children. Even in an unshaky world, even in a shaky world, in a time where things are threatening to undo us. Our world, our country, our community, uh, our individual lives, our homes, our jobs. In unsteady times, we must remember the sovereignty and providence of God. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That God is ruling and reigning in heaven and that in everything, that word literally means everything, every detail of your life, Every detail of this world and every country of this world, every state in this country, every city in this country, every church, every home, every individual life. If you are a child of God, he is working everything out for his purpose. What is his purpose? There's a twofold purpose in scripture that we see throughout it. One example of it is in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, it says that God is working out everything for the glory of his praise. That he won't share his glory with anyone. In every situation of our individual lives, he's working it out to the glory of his praise for his glory. Romans 8, 28, you know that one. That in all things God is working out for the good of his people. We serve a God who masterfully can take every circumstance of our life, every day, every minute, every second of our life, and he's masterly folding it and working it, pressing it and kneading it and cooking it in order that it comes out the product that he wants to the praise of his glory and the good of his people. My grandma, when I was growing up, she used to pull up a chair up to the counter and She'd let me watch her and sometimes participate in making biscuits. My family's from the south and we love biscuits. And my grandma, she would take this lump of dough, and I'm not sure how she got the lump of dough, but she'd take this lump of dough and she would press it and knead it. And if it was too dry, she'd add some flour to it and do it some more. And if it was too moist, she'd add some water and knead it. And she'd. Did I say something? Did I say op backwards? <laughs> well, I didn't say they were good biscuits. <laughs> she'd take a rolling pin and she'd press it just to the right thickness. And then she'd take a cutter and sometimes it was just actually a glass. And she would press down and cut out these round balls of raw dough. 
And then she'd put them in a pan, and then she'd take the scraps, that, and she'd roll and make a ball and start all over, and she'd get a few more biscuits out of it. And then she'd put it in the oven, and she'd cook it, and she'd go back and forth looking just so it would rise just right, just get brown on top. I'm making some of you hungry. That's what God does. That's what God does in every situation, in every circumstance that you face. God is pressing. He's pushing down, he's molding, he's making, he's cutting, he's baking, that his purpose might be fulfilled of bringing glory to himself and making everything work out for the good of his people. Wayne Grudem writes this, he says, all things come to pass by God's wise providence. The universe is not governed by impersonal fate or luck, but by a personal God. Nothing just happens. We should see God's hands in events throughout the day, causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is experiencing great success in his kingdom, Babylon. His kingdom has gotten to the point to where they're rich. There's no enemies that's stronger than them. And, and, and he starts getting pride in his heart. And you know, God doesn't like that. So God gives him a dream. And in this dream, he realized, King Nebuchadnezzar realizes it's a spiritual dream. He's not sure what to make of it, but none of his people can interpret it. So he finds this young man by the name of Daniel and he asked Daniel to do it. And Daniel, full of the Holy Spirit, says this to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you have allowed pride into your heart. You think that this kingdom of yours is yours to do as you will. It's not. So the dream means that God is going to take you off the throne for a time until your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Heaven rules. Those are perhaps the two most powerful words you could put together. Heaven rules. I realize in a congregation this size that there are people going through things I can't imagine going through. I realize that there are things that threaten you and fear grips your heart about circumstances that I have no idea what you're going through. And I don't mean to lessen your pain, but can you hear me this morning that on the authority of God's word, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is going to take everything, everything, and mold it and make it and press it and cut it and cook it till it ends up for his glory and for your good. If we could live in light of the fact of the sovereignty of God, how much better life would be. This morning I want to answer the question, what does it mean to live in light, in life, live a life in light of the fact that heaven rules. And I want to give you five principles. My text today is 1 Samuel, the end of 1 Samuel 10, and we're going to go through 1 Samuel 11. If you want to turn there, it's on page 221 in your Bibles. As you're turning, I want to lay the groundwork for what's going on. In chapter 9, God is orchestrating a scenario for Samuel, who is the judge and prophet of Israel, for him to meet the future king, the first king of Israel, that is Saul. Now, Samuel does not know Saul. Samuel has never heard of Saul. He doesn't know where this young man lives. God has told Samuel that he's going to identify him in time. Interestingly enough, the text seems to indicate very strongly that Saul has no idea who Samuel is. So God has to orchestrate a circumstance, a set of circumstances, in order for Samuel to meet Saul. And this is how he does it. One day, Saul's dad comes to his son, Saul. And he says, Saul, some donkeys got out of the pen. 
I want you to go pick a worker, and I want you to go find these donkeys. So Saul goes, he picks this worker, a worker, and they go out and they search all day long. They go to different towns and they search all day long and they can't find these donkeys. And finally Saul says to this worker, he's like, look, dad's going to be worried about us. Let's forget the donkeys and let's go back home. Well, this worker says, but look, we're almost to Samuel City. And Saul's like, who's this? He's like, he's called the seer. He knows things that other people don't. He can see things. He has special insight. He has a special connection to God to see things that other people can't. Let's go try to find him. Uh, Let's do one more thing and try to find him and see if he can lead us to the donkeys. And so Saul agrees. And so they start walking towards Samuel's city. And they pass these two ladies and they say, hey, we're looking for the prophet Samuel. And the lady's like, they they, they said, "We, we just passed him. He's right up the road. If you run, you can catch him. So they run up to him and they find Samuel. And as soon as Samuel sees Saul, the Spirit of God whispers in Samuel's ear, this is him. This is the future king of Israel. And Samuel says to Saul, look, your donkeys are safe. They're going to be going back home. You'll find them back home when you get there. But we got more important things to talk about. And he takes him to the home and uh, he explains to him, look, you're, you're the king. You're going to be the king of Israel. And he spends the night with him. And the next morning, they, uh, they get up and he takes them outside. And he announces to the people there in his hometown that Saul is going to be their future king. And that's where we pick up in verse 26 of chapter 10. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. Some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silence. So after Saul is announced in Samuel's hometown that he's going to be the king, Saul goes home. Uh, He takes with him some bodyguards. Why? Because the text tells us there's some people that are against him. But notice there at the end, uh, it says that Saul, even though he knew there were people against him, he kept silent. I want you to, to note that, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Let's read on. Verse 1, chapter 11, Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now this event, we know if you read on into chapter 13, this was a good year after Saul had been told and sent back home by Samuel. And what happens is Israel's enemy, the Ammonites, led by their leader Nahash, they come and they take over the territory of Jabesh-Gilead. It's a territory of Israel. They take it over. And the the elders of Jabesh-Gilead, they say, look, we'll make a deal with you. Give us one week. And if we can't get some people to help us, if we can't go get our brothers and sisters to help us, well, we won't even fight you. We will enter into agreement of slavery with you. The king of Nahash says, well, I'm going to gouge out your right eye to show an act of intimidation for the rest of Israel as well. And they said, give us a week. God stirs his heart and... He's thinking, well, 
in, in his rationale, he's probably thinking, you know, if I wait a week, they're not going to get enough help for the military that I have, and we, they'll just roll over, and I won't even have to fight them. And so he agrees. And so the elders of that town send messengers out through the rest of Israel to try to rally help. And they come to Saul's town, verse, uh, verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, what's going on? What's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? And they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh of Gilead had said. So Saul, he's been farming. Uh, here he is. Uh, he's been told that he's going to be the king of Israel. It's, it's been some time, at least a year. For all he, he, again, he didn't know who Samuel was. For all he knew, Samuel was a quack. But he's looking around and he's seeing these big, big men, these bodyguards. So there's something to this. But notice the messengers, they go to the town of Saul, but they don't go to get Saul. All of Israel, they don't know that Saul is the king yet. They're just going, these messengers, they happen to go, happen to go to his town. Do you see that God is orchestrating all the events from the, the losing of the donkeys to Saul picking a worker that happens to know who Samuel is, to Saul agreeing to go to ask this seer if he knows where the, on and on all the way to Nahash and the Ammonites coming against, overtaking uh, this territory of Israel. He's orchestrating, setting everything up for his glory and for the good of his people. He's setting everything up to make true to his promise of making Saul the king. Think about it from the perspective of the Israelites. I mean, they don't know what's going on. To them, it looks like devastation. Our loved ones are, 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 are in captivity and they're being threatened to gads out their eyes. They, they, they don't see the, the big picture. Think about Saul. Again, he's, he's back farming. He doesn't see the big picture. It's easy for us to see, but now that we can look back and we can see how God is orchestrating everything, that he's in control. Do you realize every day of your life is preordained? Every day of your life, God is molding. He's pressing, he's kneading, he's adding the various ingredients ingredients he's superintending over every day of your life and when you're living it I know I know it can be painful and I know the threats uh, that seek to undo us but we have to wait the first thing I want you to know this morning as a result of the fact that heaven rules is that we should be a people who recognize, recognize that we need to wait Wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled. God didn't tell you that he has a brighter future for you so that you can orchestrate it yourself, so that you can manipulate the circumstances or manipulate the people you need to make. No, he didn't tell you. He told you so you could watch his wonder working power make it happen. 
you got to wait. Saul was told that he's going to be the king. He was told that he has a bright future, but that he had to wait. But notice, Saul didn't just go back and wasn't just idle. He went back to farming. Future king of Israel, he's farming. Our timetable is never, uh, I think it's fair to say it's never God's. God is much slower than we would rather him be. And we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful to do what God has called us to do each day of our life. As we're waiting for his miraculous power to intervene in our circumstances, we have to be faithful to the work of the ministry. We have to be faithful to do whatever it is that he's called us to do. Some of you have prayed for the salvation of your kids for a long time. Some of you have prayed that God would release you of, of, of your physical ailment for a long time. Some of you have prayed that you would, uh, your finances would get better and that you would get a new job for a long time. Some of you have prayed that God would, would, would take away the ache of a loss that you've incurred. You do have a brighter future. But it's not because your bank account. It's not because of your tenacity or your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not because of the doctor you go to. It's because heaven rules. It's because God has promised for those of his children that regardless of what he asks you to go through, that he's molding it for his glory and for your good. Let's read on, verse 6. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. Note that. And he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by the messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what would be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men, go back to Jabesh Gilead and say to the men, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went back and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. Now verse 10 is somewhat comical. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. They lied. God's people aren't perfect, just forgiven, right? The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Do you see? Do you see the time has come? God has orchestrated all the events. He is putting together a tapestry for his praise and the glory and the goodness of his people. Do you see from the donkeys getting lost to Saul finding Samuel, to ask where the donkeys are, to Samuel telling him he's going to be king, to him sending him back home, to Nahash and the Ammonites attacking a territory in Israel. So the messengers happen to go to Saul's town. Everything is being lined up for God's purposes. But notice what happened. Notice that the Spirit of God fell upon him 
to do the task. Some of you, God has asked you to step out of the boat and to do something for him. Can I tell you something? You are not going to have the ability to walk on water until you step out onto the water. The Spirit of God doesn't empower you for a task until it's time for you to do that task. It's called faith. God loves faith. Some of you look at your future and you think you look at circumstances that are threatening you. And you think, I don't know how in the world I'm ever going to go through that. I'm going to tell you how you're going to get through it. The Spirit of God will meet you there. Some of you don't know how you're going to get through the next week. Some of you don't know how you're going to get through tomorrow. The Spirit of God will meet you there and will get you through tomorrow and next week. He gives you the Spirit of God to do what he's asked you to do, to go through whatever, li- whatever circumstance he's asked you to do when it's time to do it. The third thing we need to remember in light of the fact that heaven rules is we need to refuse to fear. I know Tom spoke about this a couple weeks ago. Fear is plaguing us, but it ought not plague God's children. If you've got a God that's all good and all powerful and he's reigning on his throne and he's walking through life with you every day and he promises to make good on his purposes of turning everything around for his glory and your good, what is there to fear? Now I'll tell you, I didn't practice this when I first was called to Wellspring. God was very clear to me. I love Calvary Church, and I would never have left. God had to take a hammer and beat me over more than over the head more than once. And, but I was scared. I had preached less than 20 sermons in my entire life, and three of those were in preaching class in seminary. I didn't tell the search committee that, though. <laughs> Not perfect, just forgiven, right? Calvary, one of the ways that was such a blessing, you all were such a blessing to me, was uh, you they gave me, the leadership here gave me a month off. They let me leave a month early, and they, you guys paid for my salary and paid for my health insurance. And uh, Jim Sammer said, go and, and, and study and prepare, start writing sermons. And I went away, and I got three good sermons written. Another eight outlines. So, so I, I started September 2nd, 2014, knowing I'd be okay for 11 weeks. I feared. I feared that I couldn't do it. Are there really that many topics to talk about? Every week. And how do you lead a church that's suffering so? And you know what I found out? I found out I can't do it. But I found out that when it was time on Monday morning, after I preach on Sunday, preachers say Sunday night's the best time of their lives, and it is. You've just got, you've just got through your sermon, but Sunday's always coming for a preacher, right? I'd find out on Monday morning, I'd open the Word, and I'd see where we are in the book, and it was like color. Topic would be identified. God would start putting a passion and a burning in my spirit for another topic. 
I found out I can't do it, but I found out the Spirit of God can. And when it's time for you to do the work God has for you to do, and when it's time for you to go through the circumstance, the circumstance of life that God is asking you to go through, He will give you His Spirit to do it successfully if you just hold on to Him, if you wait. you be faithful to him and refuse to fear. Now, verse 12. I mean, uh, yes, verse 12. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may be put to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Now remember those enemies that we found out about in verse 27 of chapter 10. They've obviously been talking. They've obviously been gossiping and they've been trying to rally support. They've been going around and they've been saying, now, do you really think Saul is, is our leader? They've been putting doubt in people's minds. Saul knew he had enemies, but he refused to do anything about it. Why? Because he knew that God was the avenger of man. Because he knew that he had to let God fight his battles. Now, I understand that Saul did not finish his life well or his leadership. But Saul led Israel for over 40 years successfully. He was God's man. And he knew that he had to allow God to fight his battles. Look, you are always going to have people for whatever reason. Normally it's jealousy. But for whatever reason, they're against you. And they don't want you to prosper. Don't let unforgiveness hold you down. It is cancerous. It is cancerous to your spirituality. Now let me say this, because people get a, have a misunderstanding Proverbs 27 says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. We all need people in our lives that will uh, come to us and, and say, hey, did you notice this about your personality? Or, or, or did you know how this is affecting people? You know, we all have blind spots in our lives. We all need, that's a friend, a friend that will come to you. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Saul's dealing with. What Saul's dealing with, he's dealing with enemies. And you, you can always tell the difference between a friend and an enemy. A friend will come to you first. A friend will come. They love you. They want you to change. An enemy won't come to you. They don't want you to change. If you change, you might be successful. They want to go and they want to rally support from others. That's what's going on here. Saul knows he has enemies, but he remains silent. But now the people, they want to kill him. <laughs> now Saul, that he's, he's, he's proven himself. The Spirit of God has fallen on Saul. He's proven himself. He's freed uh, the, the brothers and sisters of Jabesh Gilead. And these people who are listening to these gossipers, th they want him dead. Saul says, no one's going to die today. Why? Chuck Swindoll tweeted this out. How do you forgive? Take the long view and focus on the sovereignty of God. What he's saying is, look 
the God who promises that everything, 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 even your enemies, he's going to turn around. Even those circumstances that Satan tried to defeat you with, even those sins you keep falling into, if you keep following God and you keep striving, he's going to take them and turn them around for his glory and your good. Did you, do you see why Saul's better off now? Saul's kingship is more solidified because he had those enemies. You think those people, I mean, those, those, those enemies, they're going around and they're talking and they're stirring up contention. Well, now, you know, they're getting the ear of some people. And some people, well, maybe, maybe he isn't God's man. Now that they realize he is God's man, they're not going to have anything to do with him. They want him dead. And you better believe the next time somebody comes up and they say, question whether Saul is supposed to be their leader or not. You better believe they're not going to have any time for him. They've learned their lesson. God takes everything. What can man do to me? David says in Psalms 118, God is with me. Every circumstance of every day of your life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have put yourself under his protection. You don't have to worry about the storms of life. Isaiah 43 says, yeah, the waters, they're going to get awful high. They're going to get so high just right up here, but, but they won't overtake you. Isaiah prophesied that the fires, they're going to be awful hot. And yes, we're going to have to walk through them. But they won't burn us up. Because heaven rose. God's for us. Wait, be faithful. Refuse to fear. And forgive and refuse to fight back. One more principle I'd like to point out. It's in the last two verses of chapter 11. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. A great celebration. Did you know that our God is a partying God? He loves it when we throw a party in his honor. He loves it when we get excited about the joy of our salvation. He loves it when we rejoice in the fact that he is God and we love him. Richard Foster writes this, far and away the most important benefit of celebration is that it saves us from taking ourselves too seriously. This is a desperately needed grace. It is an occupational hazard of devout folk to become stuffy bores. This should not be of all people we should be the most free, alive, interesting, 
After all, Jesus rejoiced so fully in life that he was accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. Many of us lead such sour lives that we cannot possibly be accused of such a thing. Now Richard Foster goes on to say, he's not talking about sinful partying. But did you catch what he's saying? He's saying of all people, we should be the most free, alive, interesting, and I'll add a few fearless, courageous, joyful, most peaceful people in this world. Why? Because we serve a God that sits up on his throne and he superintends on every detail of our life. If that's not worth rejoicing and celebrating, we don't have anything to celebrate. God is sovereign and he's for you. George Whitfield, the 18th century preacher, said, we are immortal. We're immortal until our time on earth is through, until our work on earth is through. What did he mean? He meant that God has preordained every bit of our lives. He's in control. He's sovereignly pressing and needing every circumstance for his glory and for your good. Some people say they got joy when they got saved. The Bible tells us that we can have an abundant life, that we'll have peace that passes understanding, that people say they they got it when they got saved. That wasn't my experience. Oh, when I first got saved, when I heard about the grace of God, I was at Ohio State University on the campus. I had to get that in there. And I, I was excited. I was running across campus, shouting. You can tell I'm a bit of an emotional person. I was, I, I, this, is, this is the best life ever, ever. But it didn't take too long before the enemy started whispering in my ear. My friends didn't quite understand the change that had taken place. And I lost the joy of my I didn't lose my salvation, but I lost the joy. But do you know when I figured it out? When I figured out all these promises that the Bible says we can have, I figured out in my experience, it wasn't when I got saved. Oh, getting saved positions you for it, and it gives you eternal life, and it's the most important thing. But if you want peace that passes understanding, if you want to wake up every morning and jump out of bed with joy, you got to get it in your spiritual DNA that there's not a thing that the circumstances of this life can do to you, that there's not an enemy that you have that can do anything to you that doesn't first go through the will of God and that doesn't go to you for which God does not promise to push it down, to press it, to add some ingredients to it, to cut it and to bake it for his glory and your good. If we could get this in our spirit, if we could understand this, I know that there are circumstances of life that threaten and sometimes things do actually happen to us that seem absolutely devastating. But if you're here this morning and you're a child of God, this promise is for you. Don't find comfort. Surely you won't find comfort in our future president. Don't find comfort in our country's military strength. Don't find comfort in your doctor or in your bank account. 
Find comfort in the fact that you serve a good, good God that's all-powerful, that's working in every detail of your life. Find comfort, find hope, find peace, find joy in the fact that heaven rules and there's not a thing Satan can do about it. 